0: Welcome to Talking in a Library, a platform for scholars to share the projects they're pursuing using the rich collections at America's oldest cultural institution, the Library Company of Philadelphia. Peace hardly seems relevant in the 17th and 18th centuries, an era defined by slavery warfare, and European colonization. Yet peace, or more precisely, peacemaking, was everywhere. Historian Michael Goode shows how peacemaking in the colonial Americas was not just an absence of war, but a complex and contested process of violence negotiation through which European, indigenous, and African peoples asserted their notions of right ordering. Drawing upon a wide range of sources at the library company, Goode describes peace as a specter, haunting histories of colonialism. Dr. Michael Goode is an assistant professor of early American history at Utah Valley University. Michael is no stranger to the library company. In fact, his book project, A Colonizing Peace, The Quaker Struggle for Gospel Order in Early America emerged during his time here as an Andrew W. Mellon Foundation Fellow. In a new co-edited volume published by Brill, The Specter of Peace, Rethinking Violence and Power in the Colonial Atlantic, Michael offers a window into his thinking about the role of peacemaking in the Colonial Atlantic. Welcome to the library, Michael. Thank you. It's good to be here. So, Michael, you have asked our print department to bring us a very large map, in fact, on tables smaller than this map. Why did you make Erica and Sarah pull this huge map for us?
1: Well, uh, first of all, it's uh, a rather famous map, actually. It's known uh, mostly, this is uh, a map that was made by an imperial, British imperial cartographer, Herman Maul. And uh, it was published uh, shortly after the Treaty of Utrecht in 1713. And the reason why it's famous, um, in part, it's, it's known as the Beaver Map. And if you look at the map on uh, the right-hand margin a, at the center, there is uh, an insert of uh, these beavers that are working. They're almost anthropomorphized. Yeah. They're on two legs and they're carrying stones, actually uh, creating a dam by carrying stones uh, on their tails. They're holding uh, s- sticks of wood and there, it's, it's, it's actually a very striking image, and this is, I think, why the map is famous, mm-hmm. and it's well-known and admired. Um, but that's not quite the reason why, that's only part of the reason why I pulled the map. I pulled the map because I think in some ways it, it really nicely illustrates the uh, ways in which uh, imperial peace, notions of imperial peace are projected onto the map and the way that they ent- intertwine with colonization and violence even.
0: So Michael, c- can you give me an example of, of how you see imperial peace being projected through the map?
1: Well, yeah, in several ways. Uh, the first, just even the, the insert with the beavers themselves, the image of the beavers, uh, it's, it's depicting uh, what I believe uh, is Niagara Falls, actually. Hmm and the it i on a surface level one could look at this and think that this is kind of a natural history scene or as sort of yeah it's describing sort of an um uh, a natural landscape with animals but but what it really is it, it i think is that this the beavers are symbolizing commerce mm. and productivity and promise imperial promise uh and it's really notable the context for this map it came out after the treaty retract so this was uh, the peace treaty that was signed um, after the war of Spanish succession Mm -hmm. and Britain had acquired uh, portions of what is now uh, Canada including Rupert's Land and a portion of Acadia uh, that is now that they called Nova Scotia or New Scotland and that's being depicted on the map uh, and so in some ways the map is celebratory uh, in that it's it's showing in admiring fashion all these recent acquisitions, but it's also sort of projecting an image of promise, imperial promise through commerce. And it's actually being represented in a very uh, interesting way through the using these beater, beavers as a metaphor of the kinds of commercial promise that, these recent acquisitions uh, hold for the British
0: Empire. Hmm. So, in terms of that 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 you know uh, possibility of commerce, it seems to me that this um, aligns with what you describe as right ordering. Um, and I'm curious to hear more about what right ordering has to do with peacemaking in colonial America.
1: Yeah. So, in our uh, my recent Uh, co-edited volume, Specter of Peace, I lay out in the introduction a notion of peacemaking or peace as a form of right ordering that is uh, conducive to social and political harmony. Mm -hmm. And so I leave it as a, a rather broad framework to open up ideas about peace and peacemaking beyond just thinking of it in terms of war. So Usually when people think about peace, it's usually held in opposition to, it's, it's the absence of war mm-hmm. or the absence of violence. This is something that the uh, sociologist uh, John Galtoun would have called negative peace, hmm. and, uh, but that only characterizes uh, a small portion of what peace could mean to peoples. Uh, in the 18th, 17th centuries in the early modern period, um, and Galtoun hints at uh, another framework for peace that it, instead of thinking about peace as an absence of violence or warfare, uh, Galtun thought that you could think of peace in terms of uh, positive peace. And this is uh, an ordering. This is a way of uh, depicting a social, envisioning a social reality, hmm. a cultural and a political reality that is not actually on the ground achieved on the ground, but is in the process of becoming Mm -hmm. so peace and peacemaking is a, is a struggle in some ways. This is one way of framing it that, that uh, thinking about peace as a struggle to try to create a particular ordering on the ground Mm -hmm. that to the observer, whether they're Imperial administrators or colonists or native peoples that, that that particular ordering would best achieve harmony from their point of view.
0: Mm. Yeah, it seems to me that there is an understandable emphasis on on violence in colonial America. Um, You know, the colonial Atlantic was a terribly violent place, uh, but in your introduction you seem to posit that the actual work of, of building these colonies may be better told through the history of peacemaking. I wonder, what exactly did peacemaking look like in this period?
1: Well, one important point would be to uh, say that there is not one history of peacemaking. Mm -hmm. That peacemaking could look like many different, or it did look like many different things. There was projections of the imperial peace, like this map, for example, Mm -hmm. uh, is a projection of the kinds of acquisitions that the British Empire had gained after the Treaty of Utrecht, but it's also a projection of possibilities. It's an imagining. And so peacemaking can look like uh, these projections on uh, this map that look into the interior of North America. Uh, this is a form of peacemaking that can be, that is not separated from violence, but uh, intertwined with violence. So histories of peace and peacemaking are, are actually can give us a, a really a good understanding of what violent a better understanding of violence, uh, the way violence operates in the colonial period. So if you look at the map, for example, Mm -hmm. in the, uh, left, the bottom left corner, uh, there is an insert on, uh, French Louisiana and in the insert or depicting French Louisiana, just to the West, of course, of, uh, you can see in the insert portions of Western South Carolina and then the border. And, of course, the border in some ways is is just a projection. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, There was no actual border, per se, because there are people migrating. Native peoples are migrating through here without... um, This border doesn't mean as much as it it does uh, in the minds of the imperial planners. But the... The important thing here is that in this insert, you see uh, different native peoples. And in the legend, it actually, the cartographer Herman Wall indicates uh, different native uh, communities and the numbers of warriors hmm. that are allied to the French. And so you can just see these different communities and it says 100 men, 250 men. And so this is actually looking at it's a military map then. Mm-hmm. So in the same map that is envisioning commercial prosperity, you have uh, this military projection where they're doing basically an assessment of the military strength of the French Empire in the Louisiana country and through their, the amount of na- native warrior allies that the French claim to have.
0: I'm curious to know more about the title of this volume. Um, you know, I come from a lit background, and my ears perked up uh, when I heard uh, "Specter." Um, I'm interested to know what what do you find is spectral about peace? Where does that title come from?
1: That, that's a great question. Uh, the term "Specter" actually is a reference to uh, an article that was written by uh, Donald Tuzin, an anthropologist. And uh, so I just sort of, he used the specter of peace as well in that title. So I played off that title. Um, and the idea is that the peace in some ways is, and p- histories of peacemaking are acting as a spectral presence in uh, colonial American history. Hmm. And that means that uh, largely uh, histories of peace or peacemaking are marginal to the literature in early American history. Uh, there is a field called peace history. It's a well-established field. Uh, but, the, but peace history as a, as, a, as a separate field is mostly focused on the 20th century and mostly anti-war movements and, and civil rights movements in the 20th century. In early American history, there are a number of works Uh, That I actually greatly admire that I think would fit uh, this rubric of histories of peace or peacemaking. There's two books that come to mind uh, off the top of my head. One, uh, Brett Rushforth's Bonds of Alliance. Uh, The second one, Juliana Barr's Peace Came in the Form of a Woman. Uh, Juliana Barr's work in particular looks at uh, the 18th century Texas borderlands and the ways in which. Peace and violence intertwine uh, with using gender as the key to unlocking the relationship. So, uh, in Barr's work, Spanish and Caddo men rely on masculine and martial language to cement diplomatic uh, relations, while Caddo women play in what Barr calls rituals of reconciliation. Hmm. Um, okay, so this is a well-known book in early American history, and rightfully so, uh, but it's it's really not. Uh, identified as a work of peace history. And people who work in peace history, it's not included in the canon of of what we would know or identify as peace history. And so that's the sense in which I think uh, peace is operating as a spectral presence. There are early American historians who are working on peace history and histories of peacemaking and Many of them are not even aware of it, or they don't choose to emphasize that. And as a field, institutionally, we're not thinking about w- the ways in which peacemaking can help us sharpen our understandings of colonialism and violence.
0: Hmm. Can you think of any other records that are sort of um, off the beaten path, you know, records that haven't necessarily been attended to that you've um, discovered in the process of of reading for the various forms of peacemaking in the colonial Atlantic.
1: Sure, yeah, uh, there's plenty of records. Actually, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, one of the issues about the challenges that historians face in constructing uh, a history of peacemaking is if you were to go to the car catalog in the library company. And I actually did this when I was a (laughs) graduate student And just looked up peace as the topic (laughs) heading, and you know there are sort of uh, you'll there are there are items underneath in the card catalog, uh, underneath the subject heading of peace, but it's very limited. Uh, Peace history societies, Noah Webster's, and and, but that's that's about it. It's a very small um, portion of the card catalog. It's like if you, if memory serves correct, it could probably it would be like an inch. Inch, inches worth of uh, card catalog mm-hmm. yet this you've got this massive card catalog mm-hmm. uh, in the reading room of the library company and arguably uh, you can construct histories of peacemaking by using all, almost all of those collections but you have to be creative about it so peacemaking appears and often when the word peace or, or peacemaking doesn't appear in the titles of works hmm uh, or it's not uh, ostensibly the, the purpose of the, of the object. So, for an example, I, you could look at uh, didactic sermons, that, uh, sort of New England Puritan sermons on family order or household mm-hmm. order. So it's obviously categorized as a work of gender and family history. At least that's one way of char- characterizing it but it's also uh, a peace discourse. So you, you could look at these sermons. Um, Cotton Mather is uh, one example. There are others in which what they're articulating is a, a particular ordering of their society. Uh, it's Sometimes historians call this the great chain of being, in which deference is expected from children, wives, and servants. Uh, But those in the higher orders, husbands, fathers, masters, uh, they were expected to offer benevolent care and protection. And so in an early modern world where the household was a metaphor for the body politic, patriarchs were expected to refrain from uh, arbitrary violence. Mm -hmm. And so you have these sermons and these household manuals that are describing how masters ought to behave. And in the the person of Cod Mather, he's actually also exhorting slaves to be obedient as well. So you have these this is not something that typically is going to be characterized as uh, peace literature, Mm -hmm. but I think it's relevant. It's relevant when you're constructing how do uh, masters, anxious patriarchs, used Kathleen Brown's term, uh, envision a peaceful ordering of their societies. They may not achieve it. Mm-hmm. I mean, part of the point of anti-slavery literature, the existence of it, is the fact that it, these peace, you cannot peacefully uh, achieve uh, uh, this ideal ordering of the household by introducing slaves uh, successfully in the ways in which it's being envisioned. But people write about it. They think about it. They attempt to rationalize slavery. They attempt to rationalize how household forms of servitude that would are normative in England in the early modern period uh, should apply to the chattelization of their societies in North America Uh, and that's relevant to a peace history.
0: So, Your Euro-American settlers might have believed in some kind of great chain of being. How did that work when uh, they came into contact with indigenous peoples?
1: Yeah, the uh in, for indigenous peoples, they had their own notions of uh peacemaking. So for uh I, I we have in front of us uh Mall's map, but another map we could look at is say the Catawba Deerskin map, which was presented to the colonial governor in South Carolina around seventeen twenty one. And if you actually were to look at this map, it shows a network of relationships between the uh, native peoples and the English, particularly the Catawba and the English. But it isn't a spatial map in the sense that it isn't looking at, um, a, a, and it's not, the purpose of the map is not an, an exact geographic rendering of space. The map is actually dedicated to relationships. Um, hmm. And so that on the right hand side of the map, there are circles, and that represents Catawba communities. On the left hand side of the map, you actually look, look it looks like it's depicting South Carolina and it's depicting these angular lines that almost look like a grid of, of cities uh, of Charleston. And what the map is getting at is it's sending a message to... The governor of South Carolina that this there has to be uh, relationships uh, that are defined through native understandings of peacemaking, and that looks different than European understandings of peacemaking. So you have in colonial America uh, different visions of peace mm-hmm. that are in contest, and sometimes they can produce alliances, or they can produce. Uh, other forms of violent conflict.
0: Yeah, and I will uh, reassure our listeners um, that we'll make uh, both the Catawba map and the mole map available in some electronic form in the show notes here so that you can explore it and and certainly raise some of your own readings, because I'd certainly be interested in hearing other perspectives. Um, This raises another question for me. Um, Have you found that in sort of reading against the grain, reading for peacemaking, in these various types of materials. Have you found that it's allowed you to integrate new uh, voices or perspectives in your own scholarship? Uh, I'm currently working on a book project that I call
1: a colonizing peace, which looks at, among other things, uh, I'm contrasting Quaker forms of peacemaking with indigenous forms of peacemaking in the 18th century. One of the characters, one of the historical figures that I've been working on for some time
0: is uh, T.D. Uskon. Oh, man. You, uh, you uh, first got me interested in him, uh, man. it must have been several years ago, when I was first doing some research at um, the Haverford College Quaker and Special Collections, and I had come in with this very specific agenda of reading for um, Quaker perspectives, and then when I started looking for T.D. Uskon, I not only found my myself sort of straying off from my research goals, as is often the case, I was wandering back further and further, but I also found him to be an incredibly complicated figure. Uh, and following him opened up different parts of those papers that I never would have found with my initial agenda.
1: Yes, I I agree. I actually found that T.D. um I sort of discovered him in the same way. Yeah. Uh, I was actually going through the Friendly Association papers at Haverford myself for my own book project. And, you know, the the lead organizer for the uh, Friendly Association is Israel Pemberton, mm-hmm. and the papers reflect his agenda. And the Quakers' agenda is complicated, but during the Seven Years' War, the Quakers, um, who had enjoyed... I wouldn't call it a monopoly power in Pennsylvania, but they were in a privileged political position that was under threat because of the Seven Years' War. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, um, the maneuvering that the, the Quakers in the provincial government that were doing, were, which was uh, to try to, on the one hand, provide for the security and defense of the province and doing it very uh, awkwardly, uh, while, recon- while at the same time, their own uh, movement is going through a reform period in which uh, the leaders of monthly meetings and the yearly meeting in Philadelphia are starting to uh, grapple with, well, what does it mean to uh, take the peace testimony seriously mm-hmm. in a time of frontier conflict? And so one of the answers, quote-unquote, the solutions to the problem was Indian diplomacy. And so for Quakers in Pennsylvania, uh, people like T.D. Uskung initially were, were, was the, they were the, the right person. This was the right native person for them to use as uh, an ally. Why and is that? It's a good question. To try to stop the war. Mm. So T.D. Uskung held the promise. T.D. Uskung himself, as a Lenape leader... Uh, in the upper Susquehanna, promised that he could actually um, get the warring Lenape in the Ohio country to stop their raiding. In fact, the British Empire, British imperial officials, like to call T.D. Uskung king of the Delawares. Hmm. And, and this is because, in some ways, T.D. Uskung himself was trying to uh, assert his own authority. In reality, T.D. Uskung had very limited, in fact, probably no authority in the Ohio country. But you can see his, uh, his, his position. Uh, and, and when I was doing his, um, more research on, on him, I began to appreciate uh, what it, indigenous peacemaking looked like from his perspective and how it differed from the Quaker agenda. So for Quakers, uh, TDS Gong is the way to stop a war, but then also to bring back colonial stability. Uh, maybe, perhaps, the peaceable kingdom from the Quaker point of view. Mm-hmm. For T.D. Uskung, it, it was actually the reason why, you know, T.D. I should say, initially in the beginning of the Seven Years' War w- was involved, he was a war chief. Mm-hmm. So he was raiding Susquehanna's uh, colonial settlements himself. So he's a war chief. And he, this is, I think, really dramatic that he switches positions and takes a risk by seeking an alliance with the Friendly Association and with the Quakers, and then ultimately for the Pennsylvania government and the British government, uh, by being playing the role of a peace chief. And for him, it isn't about colonial stability. Uh, for him, it's about preserving his lands. Mm-hmm. So uh, m- his own home land- territories were, uh, he experienced dispossession uh, and his community through the Walking Purchase, mm-hmm. which is a very uh, infamous event, which Pennsylvania officials, th- with Iroquois sanction under the Covenant Chain, uh, sanctioned the dispossession of the Lenape out of their lands in, in what is now eastern, northeastern Pennsylvania. So, it's T. D. Osgood's whole point was to try to recover his his lands, to try to get the British Empire to give back. To, to acknowledge that the that the walking purchase was a fraud that was perpetrated on the Lenape and on his people and for him it was to return to his home to return to his homelands and so he used he engaged and played the role of, of, of a peace chief but TDgang is a complicated figure he's complicated for Quakers because he doesn't Hold up to the ideal that the Quakers envision of the of a, quote unquote a peaceable Indian. Uh, for for one, he's a war chief who turns to a peace chief, so he's not mm-hmm. he's certainly not a pacifist. Uh, secondly, uh, he had the reputation of being a, a drunk. Hmm. Uh, he uh, he's, he drank quite heavily. Uh, there were several incidents uh, when he was at Fort Augusta or elsewhere where he requested you can see in the in the, actually the letters uh, that are circulating uh, at the time period where uh, they're talking about uh, incidents where TDS Kong is apologizing for mm-hmm. uh, drunken uh, drunken nights and that had caused disturbances and problems for uh, f- uh, provincial commanders and so this is This is the person that the Quakers are are working with. Um, But the reality is that his understanding of of peacemaking is not necessarily rooted in a Quaker ideal of pacifism. Mm -hmm. And uh, his even um, the use of uh, alcohol for native peoples is another sort of point of complexity in which violence and peacemaking are are intertwined. Uh, Alcohol, rum, is actually very important element for sociability Mm -hmm. um, and for peacemaking and and, and diplomacy. Uh, But at the same time, the Indian alcohol trade, the colonial alcohol trade, was a source of complaint for the the Lenape in the 18th century. So T.D. Uskung in some ways embodies all of these different kinds of contradictions. And his his notion of peacemaking is not the same as your American one. And I think it points to the ways in which native understandings of peace were defined uh, also through a right ordering, Mm -hmm. but this was a a right ordering that was rooted in a notion of reciprocity. Um, The idea that relationships were ideally mutually beneficial, and for native peoples, uh, kinship was central to the process. Native peoples extended the ties of fictive kinship both to European partners, and also other Native peoples through the ritual exchange of gifts, which included alcohol, Mm -hmm. uh, which was performed often at treaties. Indians offered land and resources with the expectation that wealth would be shared, not appropriated by Europeans outright. And, of course, the important thing is that Native peoples intended that alliances would be periodically renewed as a means to maintain the bonds of fictive kinship. So for people like T.D. Uh, would, uh, and other Lenape leaders, they would invoke the memory of William Penn and these treaties increasingly in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. And it was a mythic memory of Penn. Brother Onus. Brother Onus, yeah. Penn the peacemaker. Mm-hmm. And it was used uh, very frequently to hold colonial administrators to account. Mm. And uh, I think T.D. uses this to great effect. The, from the British imperial point of view, T.D. Usgun's only value was his ability to forge ties with the – to be the king of the Delawares, to, to, to be able to tell the Ohio country, Lenape, to stop raiding into the Susquehanna. Uh, but from T.D. Uskung's point of view, he's trying to hold the Pennsylvania government to their responsibilities under a mythic understanding of peacemaking. Uh, that started with Brother Onus, with William Penn.
0: Hmm. So, Michael, I'm going to give you a challenge, and I totally understand if you don't want to bite on this, but you know, following um, the sort of uh, diplomatic efforts of the Friendly Association, particularly Pemberton and, and his work with T.D. Uskung, at the end of the Seven Years' War, you have this pretty grotesque incident, which um, a lot of folks know about. It's the Paxton Massacre of 1763, and following that massacre, there is a print debate that's that's very much um, Euro-American zero sum, and I'm curious to know if you can find any instances of peace discourse that um, arise in that you know very sort of um, uh, acrimonious debate that comes to subsume the colony for the next year.
1: Yeah. So actually, just uh, by way of starting. Uh, to even answer that question, you did mention uh, peace discourse. That's right, and I want to make that clear to the listeners what what I would mean, or perhaps you would mean by discourse. Mm-hmm. Discourse includes language imagery, so mm-hmm. we can think of like if we go back to this the mall map on the table, mm-hmm. uh, and we have the image of the beavers uh, productively moving um, logs and stones and and building. Dams, and of course, this is this is a peace discourse because it's trafficking in a language and in an imagery of a bright future, predicated on the fur trade, predicated on commerce that, and in an expansionist British imperial realm. Mm -hmm. So, that is an important part. Is like you know what if we think about histories of peacemaking, when does the language or imagery of peace come up and I think, in surprising ways. The last place you would expect uh, peace discourse, I think, would be the Paxton Boys. (laughs) That's fair, yeah. So the Paxton Boys massacre in December of 1763, as you alluded to, 50 Scotch-Irish settlers in the backcountry who were frustrated. Mm -hmm. They were unable to prevent uh, Shawnee-Lenape raiding into their communities. This is in the middle of what was called the Pontiac's War. Uh, which itself was a continuation of the very same conflicts over land and sovereignty uh, at the se- in the Seven Years' War. These are just unresolved conflicts. Um, and they massacre eight Conestoga Indians that are allied to the Pennsylvania government. Uh, they kill 14 more that were sh- sheltered in a jail or a, a workhouse in mm-hmm. Lancaster. And uh, in. Sh- Within two months, uh, about 250 of them marched on to Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and it's understood by historians that they were aiming to, to, go, to kill more native peoples that were sheltered in Philadelphia. Uh, and again, these are uh, the reason why they targeted these, these particular groups is because that they were uh, easily accessible, they were unarmed, they were vulnerable. Uh, the intention of the target uh, the rationality of their violence was clear. Mm-hmm. They were mm-hmm. sending a message to the Pennsylvania government. Clearly, they weren't killing the Conestoga. They were. They had uh, literally butchered the Conestoga using scalping knives, tomahawks. That's right. Uh, and and the point was not to send a message to the Ohio country, Lenape, and Shawnee. It was uh, directed at the Quakers. Mm-hmm. It was directed at Ben Franklin and the Colonial Assembly uh, to say that you're not protecting us. So. Uh, of course, there, as it's well known, they were stopped by a provincial militia uh, near Germantown. And the event, instead of leading to a civil war, leads to a print debate. Mm-hmm. And so each side sort of marshals their arguments. Uh, and historians have been fascinated by this because uh, of the imagery that's being used and the, the arguments that are marshalling in support of the Paxton's vision of Uh, what the Pennsylvania government should be doing and those who oppose them, the so-called pro-Franklin Quaker side. What's surprising is that uh, you can find a lot of uh, peace discourse, as we're defining it, shot through the whole Paxton print debate. So on the Paxton side, for example, peace meant different things, but it meant Indian removal. Uh, It meant that they tried to justify their violence and this is, I want to underscore this, actually, that it's very, very rare that anyone, even in the 18th century, would, would uh, not rationalize indiscriminate killing. Hmm. So violence, even those who per- perpetuate violence that we would find abhorrent, that kind of violence has to be rationalized in some ways. And so for the Paxton boys and their supporters, they spent a lot of time thinking about just war arguments, about who's engaging in illegitimate violence. And any time that you're thinking about legitimate violence or illegitimate violence, you're engaging in a peace discourse Mm. because you're thinking about what's acceptable, what's not acceptable in terms of killing. And so uh, a lot of the time on the Paxton side... They are trying to justify their violence as legitimate because the other side, for them, Indians, all Indians, they don't make a distinction between allied Indians or not, uh, are engaging in illegitimate violence. So the implicit conversation on their side is that this, they, are, they have violated the norms of peacemaking uh, by engaging in indiscriminate attacks on the frontier And so uh, they focused on their arguments on just war. They focused on Quaker pacifism as hypocritical. Mm -hmm. You could look at the Henry Dawkins. This is a very famous uh, political cartoon that was published in 1764. Indian Squaw, King Wampum Spies, which Mm -hmm. satirizes Pemberton, uh, who, again, is the Quaker leader of the Friendly Association, who had allied with people like T.E.S. Uskung. He is uh, depicted as uh, really fondling or dancing with uh, a topless uh, Indian woman, and the, the depiction is to to show him as an unmanly mm-hmm. figure, where his sexual desire for Indian uh, women uh, proves his that he's not fit for governance mm-hmm. of the colony because he's uh, transgressing racial boundaries. He's not in control of himself, he's over the, there was the Paxton boys um, often in, in their literature satirized the Quaker as hypersexualized yeah what how is that a peace discourse? Well, it is a peace discourse in the fact that this is about who is capable of good orderly government and so the from the Paxton side, of course, uh, the Quakers are as hypersexualized Indian lovers. Um, as it's depicted in this, both in this uh, cartoon, but also in these political pamphlets, they're seen as disorderly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They can't control their bodies. They can't control the government. Their pacifism is hypocritical. All of this uh, engages with uh, notions of good governance. Yeah. You know, there are standards that are implicit in there. On the on the uh, anti-Paxton side, those supporters of Franklin. And the Pennsylvania Assembly, and the Quakers, there is a tremendous amount of uh, peace discourse, mm-hmm. the, the, ranging from arguments that killings are unChristian, that uh, peace treaties and peacemaking with natives is actually the best means for defense of so the colony, mm-hmm. and for securing the imperial peace. So, in some ways, the Paxton writers they they're not referring to the mall map, but they could. Mm-hmm. And that you could look at this imperial projection yep. and say, we can go back to this kind of uh, promise, this imperial, yep. or this commercial prosperity. And the ways to secure this is through uh, peacemaking with Indians. Um, there's, of course, then critiques of the pa- Paxton boys as being un- uh, unmanly themselves mm-hmm. and un- unable to control themselves and, and not fit for government. Um, and more basically, that the Paxton boys are engaging in an unjust war mm-hmm. and killing women and children as a violation of the law, of the notion of the laws of war, which were evolving at the time. So, so you have in this print debate uh, a great example of how uh, notions of peace or peacemaking are intertwined with a very violent event.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm. I uh, know that you've worked with me a good deal on our digital collection here at the library company Digital Paxton Um, and for that I'm very grateful. I know you've given a lot of service there and um, certainly I'm thinking not only of of Franklin's pamphlet which sort of kicks off the debate where he is condemned, he condemns the Paxton boys because they have violated the hospitality rights of their Indian guests. But he's also um, very upset that they have uh, rejected colonial authority, and they've therefore defied, they've created this disturbance in in the colony's law and order. And it, I think it's not you know surprising that not long into this debate, it becomes a debate about royalization and whether or not these proprietors are uh, capable of providing for the safety and security of the colony.
1: Yeah, that that's a great point. And actually, you could sort of describe the Paxton uh, pamphlet debate as a debate about uh, which piece is going to prevail a colonial piece an indigenous piece
0: an imperial piece Mm. all these things are at play that's fantastic so I want to have sort of like a meta conversation with you because I know you've been working on this project for some time um, and as somebody else who you know gets lost in his research. Uh, I'm curious to know, what is the origin story for this project, and relatedly, what has sustained your interest?
1: That's a good question. Of course, with uh, all scholars, all historians, we don't arrive at our topics randomly. Mm-hmm. Often our our interests are intertwined with personal interests and personal narrative, and, and I'm no exception to that. So um, I... Uh, Went to uh, Goshen College in Northern Indiana for my bachelor's degree. Uh, this is a Mennonite school, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a great liberal arts school. Plug for Goshen, thank you. <laughs> um, but it, uh, Goshen is has among other things uh, a very vibrant uh, peace studies component to their education. It's it's shot through the mission of the college. So I was sort of I in incul- I got introduced to. Peace studies um, and paying attention to the importance of uh, peacemaking I, at Goshen College. Um, later, I did. Uh, I was involved in uh, human rights work. Uh, so at, even outside of my interests as a scholar, I've, I have an interest in human rights and um, and peacemaking. And so that's what led me to my dissertation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I found it interesting, actually, that. Um, Quakers had colonized I think this is kind of in a way uh, to be honest I was shocked that there was a colony uh, in a strategically located area of North America in which you had a a group of religious dissenters that to me looked vaguely Mennonite Hmm. uh, even though they're not and they had uh, no uh, official provincial wide militia and had this own narrative you think about the narrative of Pennsylvania's colonization as this peaceable kingdom, smack dab between um, Bacon's Rebellion, Chesapeake, and King Philip's War, in New mm-hmm. England, and Indian slave trade, South Carolina. You have all these images of, and rightly so, uh, and you have this different form of colony that also facilitated a different kind of violence, right? So this is dispossession by peace discourse, right through the. Uh, 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 this is kind of the point and partly of my own book which is that uh, even the Quaker piece can inflict violence through dispossession Mm -hmm. Uh, but it was unique and to me at least when I started the dissertation I thought this was rare like Mm -hmm. to have this appear and and it intertwined with my my personal interests I think that maybe to circle back to an earlier question um, as I've done this work um, I, I used to think of the Quakers somewhat like a lot of people did as being rather exceptional. And now, after I've done this, you know, a dissertation, and now I'm completing a book project, I don't think they're exceptional at all, really. Mm. Uh, I think that um, in many ways uh, they're they're a part and parcel of the imperial project, but um, at, as well, other peoples uh, in, are interested in, in peacemaking and are thinking about peace in, in ways that are important and uh, so that's, that's how it, I, I was sort of drawn to this in a way through my own personal past and then I, as I developed my project it evolved.
0: Hmm. And so that, that, that sort of shift in your own understanding of the Quakers and their role in colonial America, is that, is that the kind of thing that sustained your interest? Like, I guess the question I'm trying to get at is you've been working on this project for years and years. How do you stay interested in it? Like what sort of discoveries have, have have kept bringing you back into places like the library company?
1: Yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, yeah, if it, this had been a project uh, just on Quaker pacifism, I would not be – it couldn't sustain my interest. And frankly, I don't think anyone c- would care either. <laughs> I, you know, the, I care, I should say, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, for the listeners out there, that I care about Quaker pacifism as a historical topic. Uh, one of the things that uh, irritate me, I think, as a, as a scholar, is the way in which pacifism is dismissed as sort of this uh, marginal thing that is disconnected from the reality of violence when, in fact, everybody is gauging in with notions of you know, peacemaking or pacifism um, implicitly when they're thinking about rationalizing violence or colonialism or there's always... Uh, pacifism is not disconnected from that and so I think that as I evolved in my, both as a scholar and my work uh, what kept me coming to the library company was uh, learning more about um, how other peoples uh, thought about peace and peacemaking in relationship to violence, particularly indigenous uh, notions of peacemaking, people like T.D. uh other Lenape leaders, um, how that in- intersected with Imperial administrators and notions of imperial peace, how they all kind of conflicted and intersected with uh, colonization. And what I've, I just think, evolved as a, as a scholar is just how richly intertwined all these things are. If you're talking about a history of peace or peacemaking, you're really thinking about early America. And then mm-hmm. by extension, you're thinking about. America and world history.
0: Now, I uh, know that I've been greedy with your time, and I've got to let you go. But I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you one sort of you know, presentist question, which is how has this project changed the way you think about the contemporary world?
1: I think that notions of uh, our notions of peace sometimes uh, fall into uh, cliched realms. Mm-hmm. Like the idea, I think the most common notion of peace is is still. If you were to assemble a, a collection of people in the room, let's say the all the readers in the reading room of the library company, and just ask them how to define peace, I still think that the most common answer you'll get is that peace means a, an absence of violence or war. It's very rare to think about peace in other ways, um, and I think that that's a, that's an issue for me because. Abstract notions of uh, negative peace, uh, this idea of peace as an absence of violence, um, or or thinking about peace simply as just utopian mm-hmm. in abstract terms, it's easy to then it makes it peace then easy to dismiss. Uh, pacifism gets then disconnected from you know again real conversations about violence and colonialism. Mm-hmm. And I, I would assert that, the, you know, we cannot understand colonialism and violence without a better historical understanding of peace and peacemaking. And in our own present age, then, if we begin to see peace as uh, more contested, more earthly, mm-hmm. more realistic, less idealistic, um, then perhaps then uh, – maybe intimations of it or gradations of, of peace then become more realistic, more achievable in our lifetimes. Um, I, I want to see uh, peace as something that is a fundamental human activity, hmm. and it's just as fundamental to our natures as, as violence. That's
0: fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time, Michael. I really appreciate you coming here to the library company. I know that it's, it's not a short trip from Utah, uh, and we're grateful to have you. Thank you, all. Thank you for joining us on Talking in the Library. Next time, we'll speak with Dr. Zara Anishanislin, who was recently awarded the Library Company's first biennial book prize for her beautiful book, Portrait of a Woman in Silk, Hidden Histories of the British Atlantic World. As always, a tip of the hat to the band Kristofsky, whose song Terrible Art serves as our theme music. Special thanks also to Nicole Scalesa, who edits and produces the podcast. See you next time.